Today on Something You Should Know, how can you drink alcohol and not get drunk? There is a way that seems to work. Then, people say processed food is bad, and if it has ingredients your grandma wouldn't use, you shouldn't eat it. First of all, your grandma probably ate a lot of stuff that may have been easy to pronounce, which I think was another part of that advice, um, but not great for you, like, you know, spam or pound cake or snickerdoodles. So I'm not really sure why people think idolizing grandma's diet is a good idea. Then fascinating food facts, like strawberries aren't really berries, but bananas are. And an explanation into why we love to drive our cars, and we do love it. It's interesting, when you ask people what their ideal commute is, the answer is not zero. It's about 20 minutes in each direction, because people seem to savor that time. All this today on Something You Should Know. Something You Should Know. Fascinating intel. The world's top experts. And practical advice you can use in your life. Today, Something You Should Know with Mike Carruthers. Hi, welcome. Another day and another episode of Something You Should Know. And thanks for listening. We start today with some advice on how to drink without getting drunk. Now, some people drink to get drunk, so this would <laughs> this doesn't apply to them. But Jim Koch, chairman of the Boston Beer Company, spends a lot of time with a beer in his hand. And he, he revealed a secret that he learned, how to drink alcohol without getting wasted. In an article at Esquire.com, he explained the secret he learned from a friend who has a Ph.D. in biochemistry. And the secret is yeast. Plain, old, active, dry yeast you buy in those little packets at the grocery store. You see, dry yeast has an enzyme in it called ADH, which is able to break alcohol molecules down into their constituent parts of carbon, hydrogen, and oxygen. That's the same thing that happens when your body metabolizes alcohol in the liver. If you also have that enzyme in your stomach when the alcohol first hits it, the ADH will begin breaking some of it down before it gets into your bloodstream and thus into your brain. Just before he starts drinking, Koch takes one teaspoon of yeast mixed with yogurt for each drink he plans to consume. While it does not eliminate the effects of alcohol, it can minimize them. The author of the article did some tests and found that it did help mitigate some, but not all, of that feeling of being drunk. And that is something you should know. I know you've heard this advice that when you buy a food product at the store, it's a good idea to look at the ingredient label. And the general wisdom is that the fewer ingredients, the better. And if there are a lot of hard-to-pronounce ingredients, well, that's a bad sign. So how accurate is that advice? And why are all those ingredients in some food products? And what are they in there for? Here to discuss this is George Zayden. He is an MIT-trained chemist who created National Geographic's web series, Ingredients, The Stuff Inside Your Stuff. He co-wrote and directed MIT's web series, Science Out Loud, and he is the author of the book, Ingredients, The Strange Chemistry of What We Put in Us and on Us. Hi, George. Welcome. Mike, thanks for having me. So the advice that I think many of us have heard that You know, if you're looking at a food product to buy and there's ingredients in there that your grandmother didn't use or that you can't pronounce, 
that you shouldn't buy it. Are you, are you in agreement with that? So I know a lot of people who swear by that advice, and I don't. First of all, your grandma probably ate a lot of stuff that uh, may have been easy to pronounce, which I think was another part of that advice, um, but not great for you, like, you know, spam or pound cake or snickerdoodles. And your life expectancy is probably higher than your grandmother's was. So I'm not really sure why people think idolizing grandma's diet is a good idea. I'd listen to her wisdom, sure, um, but I, I would not try and copy her diet. Yeah, I get that, but I'm not so sure that I idolize my grandmother's diet so much as I have a concern, and I think a lot of people have a concern for the way food is seemingly over-engineered. I mean, things are artificially colored in colors that you don't find anywhere in nature. Uh, there are ingredients in the ingredient list of big, long words I've never seen before. I don't know how to pronounce them. I don't know what they are. So why am I eating them? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think it helps to, to know a little bit about the different types of, of ingredients, of additives. There are things like vitamins and minerals, which you know are added to try and prevent nutritional deficiency diseases. Classic example there is iodine is added to almost all salt to try and prevent goiter. There are flavorings, you know, which are added, obviously, to make food taste better, and that's a whole other, you know, debate we can have. There are lots of different types of uh, texture-modifying additives. So, for example, most peanut butter you buy will contain emulsifiers to prevent the peanut solids from separating out, separating out from the peanut oil. And then, of course, there are preservatives, which, if you didn't have those, your food would go bad a lot faster. So, you know, those are just a few of the categories. And if you're interested in seeing the entire long list, you can find that the FDA has a list. And But the question is, you know, why is all this stuff in there? Does it need to be in there? We all want foods that are healthy, delicious, convenient, and cheap. But it's it's really hard, if not impossible, to have all of those things at once. If you want peanut butter that doesn't separate, uh, you can either buy the all-natural stuff and put it in the fridge, which I personally think makes it taste not as good, or you can buy a peanut butter with an emulsifier in it. It, it is a trade-off. You know, the other part of the trade-off is if you want everything to be all natural, be prepared to spend a lot more on your groceries and spend a lot more time preparing food. It really is a trade-off. The whole, the whole idea of added ingredients gets a bad rap because there, there is this just idea that the fewer ingredients, the better. And I guess it's because like when you, when you eat an apple, the only ingredient is apple, and that's a very, you know, natural, easy-to-understand concept. And so when you have some something else, applesauce, and there's 18 added ingredients, people are suspect of that. Yes, that comes part and parcel with the other piece uh, of this, which is if the ingredient is really hard to pronounce, uh, it must be bad for you. You know, I have I have issues with that, too. Uh, my main issue with the pronouncing thing is like, you know, one chemical can have 40 different names and they can range from really easy to pronounce to impossible to pronounce. So if I tell you that a food contains one alpha D glucopyranosyl two beta D fructofuranoside, you'd think I was trying to poison you. But that is just sugar. That's another name for sugar. Um the name of the chemical doesn't tell you anything about whether it's good or bad for you. It tells you how the FDA regulates ingredient labels. And your other point of, you know, the more ingredients it has, the worse it must be for you. That's, I think that's a side effect of the wellness industry 
basically brainwashing us or trying to to believe that chemicals are somehow bad for you or that just because something is a chemical, it must therefore be bad for you. So the more chemicals you have, the worse a food is. And, you know, that couldn't be further from the truth. An apple, for example, seems really simple, but it has hundreds, if not thousands of chemicals in there. It's made of living cells with proteins and genomes and small molecules and, you know, polysaccharides, all kinds of things that are hard to pronounce. But, you know, no one would ever argue, oh, an apple has a thousand chemicals, so therefore it must be bad for you. So here's the concern I think people have that seems pretty obvious, that the amount of processed food being manufactured and eaten is on the rise. I mean, the store is full of processed food products. Every corner has one or two or three or four fast food places. There's a lot of processed food being consumed. And in addition, we have an obesity problem, a growing obesity problem in this country. People are getting heavier and I don't think it's going out on a limb to say these two things are probably connected. Yeah, so that it's another great question. You know, trying to work out what caused and what is continuing to cause the obesity epidemic that we are all living through is is really difficult. Um, ultra processed foods could could very well be responsible. It could be that by over-engineering these foods, we've made them addictive, so people eat more of them and then they become obese. Um, I talked to many scientists who totally buy that theory. I think it sounds very plausible. I also talked to a few scientists who had different ideas. They said, look, it may not just be one thing that's doing that. Um, one person said that uh, he thought the obesity epidemic could be explained partially by the decrease in smoking rates. Now, how might that have a role? Cigarettes are an appetite suppressant. So, you know, if you, if uh, the, a, a large number of people stop smoking, they're going to start eating more food. Um, another scientist I th talked to thought that architecture might play a role. He said that, you know, the the way kitchen, the way homes are designed these days, kitchens are the hub of the home, and if you spend a lot of time near a kitchen, you know, that's going to make you want to eat more food. So my my belief here is that the obese the obesity epidemic has many different causes. One major one may very well be ultra processed food, um, but there's not going to be one silver bullet to ending it. One of the processes of processed food seems to be everything has added sugar. It's hard to find food that, uh, that eats foods that you wouldn't necessarily even think would have sugar, have sugar. There's a lot of added sugar in an awful lot of foods, and people have, have demonized sugar, whether right or wrong, that that is a real culprit. That is one theory. I find it a little slightly hard to believe that one chemical is the only responsible party for an entire epidemic across large parts of one country. I think it's more likely that there are multiple causes at play. It's funny, the other part of that is sugar is completely natural. It, it's sort of funny to me that some of the same people who are saying sugar is the devil are also some of the people who are saying only eat natural things. It's, you know, that, that's conflicting advice. Yeah, but for example, if you make, I don't know, crackers at home, you, there probably isn't much sugar added to it. But if you look at crack a, a package of crackers you buy at the store, there's sugar in it. Well, why is there sugar in cr crackers aren't sweet? So why is there sugar in it? I'm not sure exactly. I, my suspicion is that if you if there is added sugar in something, it will it will cue you to eat more of it or it will cue you to take that next bite. There was a study that came out uh, 
one or two years ago that was done at NIH, and it was a randomized controlled trial, which is the gold standard of these kinds of studies. And basically what they did was they took two groups of people and fed one group uh, a diet high in ultra-processed foods and fed another group uh, a diet low in ultra-processed food. Now, this was not looking at sugar specifically. This was looking broadly at a, a diet that was more processed versus a diet that was less processed. And they found that the people who were given the ultra-processed diet did eat more. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't double, but it was a measurable amount more that, you know, over time does lend weight to the theory that ultra-processed foods could be partially responsible for the obesity epidemic. So, yeah, I mean, I, I buy that sugar might play a role. I'm just not sure it's the only thing playing a role. We're talking about the foods you eat and the ingredients in those foods, what they are, what they do, and what they don't do. My guest is George Zayden. He is an MIT-trained chemist, and he is author of the book Ingredients, The Strange Chemistry of What We Put in Us and On Us. So, George, it sounds like you're saying, you know, there's a lot of factors here and we can't really figure out or find the silver bullet, so, so don't worry about it. Is that what you're saying? Broadly, I would say, yeah, worry a little bit less. But, but it also depends on who I'm talking to. So I'm talking really to the person who is worried a lot about food and spends a good chunk of time on the internet researching individual ingredients. If that's you, or if you've found, if you've, you know, if you've changed your diet five times in the last year because of news you've seen, then I would say, yes, you know, go ahead and worry less about food. You can relax a little bit. On the other hand, if you are overweight or obese, or if you've got a, a medical condition of some kind, there I would say you're probably worrying the right amount, or maybe you should worry a little bit more. Do you think that if a, a processed food is sold in the United States, that whatever is in it is probably okay? I believe that we can all be fairly confident that unless something is contaminated or something has gone wrong somewhere in a production process, foods sold in the U.S. are not going to be immediately toxic or poisonous. Now, where things get tricky is when you start extending that time horizon. So, yeah, okay, those ingredients may not be poisonous immediately now, but are they going to raise your risk of a heart attack or cancer? That is a lot harder to figure out. You have to follow a large group of people over a long period of time. You have to accurately record what they eat. You have to track what diseases they get. Um, and so using these methods, uh, scientists have estimated that eating 10% more ultra-processed food is associated with roughly a one-year shorter lifespan. And there's a lot of disagreement about that result. It's not ironclad. But I do think we have to be comfortable with the idea that we know less than we think we do about the longer-term health effects of most foods and ingredients. Then doesn't that circle back to and support the idea that if we don't know the long-term effects of all these ingredients and all these things we're eating, that we should eat a simpler diet and that that would be safer in the long run? Or you could argue, you know, you could argue the opposite. If we don't really know, why don't you just eat whatever, whatever you want? There's a lot of factors that go into your decision about what to eat. Uh, some of it is health effects, like we've been talking about. Other, other parts of it are, what do I enjoy? I mean, the, the sort of more European or the, the more French way of eating is we don't, we don't worry about whether a food is particularly good or particularly bad. We just eat what, what we like, what makes us feel good, what we eat with company. And that, I would argue, is is probably, it, I hesitate to use the word healthier, but 
that's maybe a more sane way of looking at foods uh, rather than rather than worrying about, well, is this one particular ingredient bad for me because I can't pronounce it? Well, I think there is a suspicion that people who, the companies that make processed foods are up to something. I mean, wh- why do we need to have caffeine in orange soda? I mean, it, 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 oranges don't have caffeine. Why does the soda have to have caffeine? The suspicion is to, to hook people on it and th- th- that there's just trouble afoot here, that that manufacturers are manufacturing addicting foods, making us fatter, making us unhealthy, and that's the problem. Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I think that is a that's a philosophy that actually France does share with us because th- they are quite vigilant about about certain things over there, especially how quote unquote natural a food is or how natural it's perceived to be. I think part of the problem does come down to the food industry there. I mean, they have made no bones about the fact that they have engineered foods to be delicious. I mean, on the one hand, why wouldn't you engineer? If you're trying to sell a food, you would want it to taste as good as possible. So why wouldn't you engineer it to be delicious? But on the other hand, you know, you can argue that they've gone too far, that things are too good, <laughs> that we eat too much of them. And so that uh, the, that suspicion is probably a natural reaction to to the the percep- to that perception. Well, you know, in every story there has to be a bad guy. And so it's easy to point fingers at the food manufacturers and point at things like, you know, why do cheese puffs have to be that bright orange color? What is that and what is it doing to us? I think everyone's heard that you know the artificial strawberry flavor is actually, you know, crushed up bugs. Well, why don't they just use strawberries? Why do they have to crush up bugs? There's this suspicion that somebody's manipulating this. Crushed up bugs are completely natural. I mean, that's the funny thing about it, right? It is that part of it is a perception issue. You know, natural bugs are not okay, but adding caffeine to cola, for example, it, you know, it is is fine. The the other thing I would say there is bad news tends to sell, and so if you have a headline that says, for example, you know, coffee raises your risk of a heart attack or whatever it may be, that is much more likely to get clicks and traction and media coverage than a headline that says, you know, coffee's probably fine and there's maybe one group of people who should avoid it, but, you know, most of the, most of the time you're okay. Let's go back to crushed up bugs for a sec. Crushed up bugs are there to make strawberry flavor. Why isn't there just strawberries in it? And it, it's fine if you want to put natural crushed up bugs, but say it's natural crushed up bug flavored whatever, not artificially s- strawberry flavor and put in crushed up bugs. So I think there it's because I think the the crushed up bugs are actually for color, if I remember correctly, not for flavor. But your point is is well taken. It's like, why would you add artificial strawberry flavor instead of actual strawberries? And basically there, the answer is cost. I mean, it is way more expensive to if you want to make strawberry ice cream to make it out of freshly harvested, delicious, ripe strawberries than it is to um take one or two of the chemicals in strawberry flavor, isolate them and add them to ice cream. So again, you know, you can have healthy, cheap, delicious, um, and convenient food. You can't have all four of those things that occasionally they're going to have to be trade-offs. Well, and I think that's really where it comes down to, isn't it? It's, it's really trade-offs because you can get naturally flavored just about anything, but it's going to cost you more. Organic is going to cost you more. It's just... If you're willing to pay for it, go have it. But if you want cheap strawberry ice cream, well, it's probably going to have some 
artificial flavors in it. Yeah, absolutely. There are a lot of people, though, who write books and go on TV and they wear white lab coats and they demonize a lot of foods that they say that, you know, you should eat an all-natural diet and, and, and explain why all these horrible foods are going to kill you. And, and, and they have science to back it up. They publish a lot of either unsubstantiated stuff or they'll read a study and overinterpret it um, or uh, not say things about the study that were counterintuitive or weaknesses of the study. They won't give you the full picture. Um, you know, a lot of the stuff you read on blogs is basically blueberries are a miracle food or, you know, um, I don't know, kale is poison or things like that. Extreme statements that aren't necessarily grounded in fact. Well, I've noticed that there is a lot of nutrition advice that is based on assumptions, based on philosophies that, you know, humans are naturally vegetarian. Oh, no, they're not. No, humans are naturally carnivores. Well, they can't both be right, but they take that one of those positions or some other position about what humans should or shouldn't eat and run with it based on the philosophy yeah, exactly. And much of that advice, if it is tested at all, it's tested in a way that really doesn't actually test what the person is claiming was tested. You know, if they say, listen, you should avoid every single gram of processed food and never eat anything unless it's completely all natural. Well, no one's ever done that experiment. You know, we've done experiments where we've incrementally increased um, someone's processed food intake, but we have not had two groups of people and you know, released one group into the forest to fend for themselves and fed the entire, the other group, you know, a diet entirely of Cheetos and Coke. It, that just doesn't, <laughs> it just doesn't happen like that. But reading these blogs, you'd think it does. Well, I like having these conversations about food and nutrition because there is so much conflicting advice and some of it is very extreme, but every single person has to figure out and sometimes struggle with what should they eat, what should they not eat. And it's good to get uh, some solid information about it. My guest has been George Zayden. He is an MIT-trained chemist. He created the National Geographic web series Ingredients, The Stuff Inside Your Stuff. And he is author of the book Ingredients, The Strange Chemistry of What We Put in Us and on Us. There's a link to his book in the show notes. Thanks, George. Cool. Thank you very much, Mike. I'm one of those people who likes to drive. I've always liked to drive. Not all the time. Certainly here in Southern California, traffic can make driving more, <laughs> more like parking. But like so many people, I find there's something very magical and freeing about driving down the open road. For many of us who like to drive, the idea of self-driving cars sounds terrible. How will that work? How can self-driving cars share the road with people driving cars? What about that sense of control you have when you're driving? I would imagine you have just the opposite sense in a self-driving car. Matthew Crawford is somebody who's given this a lot of thought. He likes to drive. He's a mechanic, a philosopher, and he's author of a really interesting book called Why We Drive. And he's here to talk about it. Hey, Matthew. Welcome. Hey, Mike. Thanks for having me. So why do we drive? You know, we drive to get to, from point A to point B, and we drive for fun, as you just mentioned. I also think that in driving, we're displaying some really impressive human capacities. 
not least uh, a kind of capacity for cooperation on the road. And I take that to be an important element of uh, political culture, really. What do you mean, political culture? Explain that. The, the reason I kind of got interested in this topic was a news report about a Google self-driving car that came up on an intersection, and it was a four-way stop. The car came to a complete stop and waited for the other cars to do the same before going through. But of course, that's not what people do, right? They, they roll through. It's kind of improvisational. So the, the Google car just got paralyzed. It didn't know what to do. And it's interesting, the Google engineer who was in charge said that what he had learned from the episode is that human beings need to be less idiotic. And of course, what he meant by that is they need to behave more like robots, be strict rule followers. But completely invisible to him was the kind of social intelligence on display, what was actually going on at that intersection. You know, so you have people make eye contact, maybe one person waves another through. There's almost a kind of body language of driving. But if you think the mind is basically an inferior version of a computer, then this is the conclusion you reach to, that human beings need to sort of get out of the way to make room for the machines. You're right. And, and we all cooperate on the road, or most of us do. And it does seem that we have this kind of unspoken cooperation, you know, at a four-way stop. You go, and then you go. and But then people can screw it up because it's their turn, and they don't go, and they wave you, yeah. but it's not your turn. And then, and then the whole rhythm gets thrown out because they've broken the rule. Yeah, and I think the, the impulse to automate things comes from taking those instances as, you know, the thing that, um, is, that irritates you and that you're trying to eliminate, you know, all that sort of slightly improvisational, some slightly chaotic stuff, which for the most part works. But if you if you have a dream of perfect order, then it's somehow offensive to you. But I think an important element of the democratic personality is our ability to solve problems together without having to rely on some bureaucracy or on some technology that does everything for us. You know what I find interesting is when I talk to young people, and I have, you know, I have two boys, one's 15, he'll be getting his license soon, that that desire to get your driver's license isn't what it used to be when I was 16. That that day was like one of the best days of my life when I got my driver's license, and today it's it's not that. And maybe it's because, you know, there's Uber and there's Lyft and the talk of self-driving cars and the... the that younger people today don't have that, whatever that feeling is of, I've got to get my license and I've, I've got to get on the road. Yeah, I think a lot of people our age have, have similar stories to tell. So it's an interesting question of what, like, why do younger people not have that? And I guess, I mean, I can only speculate, but, um, you know, the, We've, we've had a, a push toward a different relationship to the material world that automation is part of. Uh, it's a shift in which the demands of skill and competence give way to a promise of safety and convenience. And maybe part of it also is if you spend a lot of your life uh, in front of a screen in a sort of you know, manufactured reality, say you know, playing video games, 
where you blow stuff up and you get blown up and you just hit reset. There's no real consequences to your actions. That's a world that doesn't really push back against you. And the interesting thing about sort of actually driving a car is, is that you make mistakes and you learn uh, sort of unambiguously that you have made a mistake. I mean, you can scare yourself. And I think there's an important kind of education of the character that happens when you submit yourself to that kind of humiliation from physical stuff. Well, and, you know, I wonder too, when I hear you say that is, you know, driving, when I first started driving, it was very exciting. But I wonder if you play video games where you're driving and blowing things up and knocking people over, that real driving may not be so exciting because you don't get to, you don't get to do (laughs) that. Yeah, it's kind of bland. It's weird because it's both more bland and yet more demanding in the sense that, the you know, the, obviously the consequences are so enormous. We're hurtling toward one another in these sheet metal containers of gasoline with just painted lines to separate us. So is the, is the, the magical age of driving that I remember, is it gone forever? I don't think so. I mean, the the road is still there. The the country is still there. And when you get off the interstate and you take some of the the little county roads, it's amazing the the difference. You know, the interstate, all those establishments are basically they sprung up to service people who are just passing through. But when you get off onto the surface roads, they're actual communities, and and you see that. Places really differ. It's it's an amazingly diverse country. Uh, once you get away from the homogenized um, arena of the interstate, you you discover your country again when you get out on the road. It's, it's a great thing to do. One of the things that fascinates me about driving is is how people how people behave. And you know, there's been surveys that say that, you know, 80% of people think they're better than average drivers, which is a (laughs) statistical impossibility. And, and yet there's like two behaviors. There's like the individual way I drive, but then I'm also part of a, of a group, which is why we all slow down for accidents and cause traffic jams, that there's that group driving. And then there's the individual driving. It's, it's interesting because we're very alone in our cars. We're sealed off from other people in our private property. And yet the road is this shared space. So driving has this kind of hybrid quality to it that I think nicely mirrors kind of this big sort of social picture where we have a hyper individualism, especially in America, uh, sort of every man for himself. But on the other hand, we have these hopes for social solidarity. And somehow the whole problem of a democratic society seems to be kind of in microcosm in driving that's endlessly fascinating. And there are always people, when you're driving with a lot of cars around you, there's always people who go too fast or go too slow. But but that's not quite as big a problem, at least for me, as the the idiots who weave in and out of traffic and and you know barely miss everybody and yeah. and and rev their engines and all that and I've always wondered about those guys and and I think they're usually guys sure as to why because from the time I started driving and, and been in cars with other people and seen those people driving in other cars i've never heard anyone go oh my god that he is the coolest guy i've ever seen (laughs) everybody thinks he's an idiot but 
yeah. but he doesn't think he's an but how come he doesn't think he's an idiot when <laughs> when no one has ever reinforced like oh my god you're rev it again you're just so cool <laughs> my god oh you nearly cut that guy off that is fabulous nobody <laughs> nobody ever says that uh, that's that's well put i think the young male in particular is given to self-dramatization and often his car is a means for uh, kind of projecting out onto the world some image that he has of himself. And, you know, that stuff is best confined to a racetrack, obviously. And and in this book, I I take these excursions into different grassroots motorsports and automotive subcultures where that that instinct is given free reign, that sort of competitive, you know, a little bit macho um, and playful spirit. It's, it's interesting. It's both... Um, a spirit of hostility combined with friendship where you have people kind of trying to outdo one another in excellence. But those are guys on a racetrack who probably yeah. are pretty well trained in what they're doing and, and, and they're not driving amongst the rest of us, uh, I guess, trying to impress themselves or other people. I, I just found it interesting because there, there is no reinforcement for that behavior and yet it never ends. Well, I think we feel weirdly empowered in our cards. There's a kind of solipsism where you feel um, you've got all this horsepower at your, at, at your fingertips and um, other people are almost an abstraction. And so you feel safe to, to live out this um, kind of, you know, everyone get out of my way. I'm the center of the universe. Well, it's a little early to predict, but how do you think the world will react to driverless cars? I mean, I, I have no interest in one because I like to drive. Well, you're you're in the majority in feeling that way. When they poll people, they still distrust the technology. Pew did a survey where they asked people about driving, and it turns out about two-thirds of people enjoy it, and one-third just regard it as a chore. But it's become very clear that this push for driverless cars is very much a top-down project that has to be sold to people. It's not a response to consumer demand. But especially with driverless cars, there's this totalizing logic um, because they're really not going to be able to share the road gracefully with humans. Artificial intelligence and human intelligence are just too different. So it's kind of an all-or-nothing thing where driving your own car if we go down this road, is likely to become illegal. So boil this down for me. What's the, what's the big message here? I've got this hunch that you know, doing things for ourselves is important, um, a hunch that taking risks is inherently bound up with humanizing possibilities. And so if you're trying to sort of make everything idiot-proof for the sake of safety, there's a risk of human degradation that is it's subtle, but it's worth thinking about. And if you've ever seen that movie Wally, I think it presents a pretty nice picture of that. Have you seen that? Oh, maybe a long time ago. Yeah. Well, let me just refresh your memory and those of your listeners. So there's a scene where these you know, grotesquely fat people are being ferried around in these driverless pods, slurping from their cup holders, gazing rapidly at their screens. And their faces beam with this opiate pleasure of being completely safe and content. And yet somehow 
less than human. You can't watch that scene with feeling a certain revulsion. And I take that as a, as a clue that there's something important at stake when we're rendered into passengers. And you could point to any number of other movies in which, for whatever reason, driverless cars play a prominent role. Somehow we have this intuition that being rendered into passengers um, is some kind of threshold that we, we don't want to cross. And maybe just, you know, finding your way through the world by the exercise of your own powers is a very basic animal kind of competence and freedom. Well, I've never been in a driverless car, but I remember the first time I got on the air train at JFK Airport in New York, which is a, you know, the train that goes around the airport and there is no driver. There's no one driving the train. It's a computer driving it, I assume. And... It w- I just remembered that, that uh, this very weird feeling of what you just described of here I am a passenger, but there is no driver. There's we're all passengers. There's nobody here in control. It's just a weird feeling. Or there's something in control, but you don't know what or where it is. Right. It's, yeah. it's not some entity that you can visualize. You can't address it in any way. So, yeah, there's a kind of spooky action at a distance quality that kind of goes against the grain of our, you know, we're animals with bodies and we like to see who we're dealing with. We like to see um, who's in control. And I imagine if I get in a driverless car and it starts to move, I'm going to have that very same feeling of what's going on? I have no, there's no point of reference. There's no way to know what's happening. It, and I think our, our readiness to accept that or not, it serves as a nice index of this subtle form of re-education that's taking place toward greater passivity and dependence where we become more willing to be completely ignorant of the basic, you know, kind of infrastructure of material stuff that we depend on, like that's someone else's business. And that doesn't sit very well with the kind of mental engagement with your own world that that makes you also responsible for your world. You know what I wonder is if there were driverless cars and it was time to get one, like what? What are the? What are you shopping for? What? What are the features? Why would you get this one and not that one? I mean, there, there. It's just going to be all vanilla cars. Well, you can imagine a world in which you can hail one uh, for free and ride it for free. Uh, but of course, it's not really free because once you get in, you then have to decline. You know, ten different offers to, tailored to your unique lifestyle. Uh, in other words, the the car becomes a device, and like all devices and gadgets these days, it gets kind of um, absorbed into the logic of surveillance capitalism, where the whole point is to gather data about you, your movements through the world, and use that to sell you stuff and sort of create a, a proprietary uh, science of managing your behavior. And that's, I think people are starting to wake up to, to the fact that that's the basic logic of the internet, which is now um, slipping the the bounds of the screen and coming out into the real world with uh, smart devices of all kinds. That so in other words, the driverless car might or might not be better for you, but that's not the point, it's to be better for you. It's, <laughs> it's to uh, gather data about you. 
Well, there is something about driving that when you get in the car and you shut the door and it's just you and you decide where to point the car, how fast to go, when to go, there's something so, I don't know, gratifying and freeing about that, that the idea of losing that, uh, well, I, I don't like that at all. Yeah, it's the absence of remote control, I guess. And how many spaces can you really say that about? I mean, your own home, hopefully, um, and your car is a place where you have a bit of private headspace. And it's interesting, when you ask people how what their ideal commute is or would be, the answer is not zero. It's about 20 minutes in each direction because people seem to savor that time of uh, kind of decompressing, you know, between work and home and and also just being out roaming without giving anyone an account of your whereabouts. You know, there's no committee involved. It's just, you know, the accelerator wired directly to the seat of your pants. And you're right. There's something just um, really rejuvenating about that. Well, what you said that people who commute don't want a zero commute, they like to commute. They like their drive. They like their solitude, whatever that is. There, there's something that feeds the soul, I think, about driving, and it's, it's interesting to talk about. Matthew Clark has been my guest, and the name of his book is Why We Drive. You'll find a link to it in the show notes. Thanks, Matthew. Yeah, this is fun. Thanks, Mike. And we close today with some fascinating facts about the foods you eat, because there is a lot about food you probably don't know. For example, most of the salmon we eat is dyed pink. Wild salmon are pink in color because of these little crustaceans called krill that they eat. But farm salmon, which accounts for two-thirds of the salmon we eat, are fed pellets to dye their flesh pink. Otherwise, they would be gray. An ear of corn will almost always have an even number of rows. What's in your peanut butter may shock you. According to the FDA, there may be up to an average of 30 or more insect fragments per 100 grams of peanut butter and an average of one or more rodent hairs per 100 grams. Twinkies actually do have a shelf life. It's about 45 days. Honey does not have a shelf life. It may crystallize and change color, but it will never go bad. Avocados, pumpkins, bananas, and watermelon are all actually berries. But strawberries are not berries. Almonds are part of the peach family. And the average American eats about one, <laughs> eats about one ton of food per year. And that is something you should know. I am here. If you have any comments, questions, or ideas, you can always contact me by email, and I always read them. It's mike at somethingyoushouldknow.net. I'm Mike Carruthers. Thanks for listening today to Something You Should Know.